listeners, welcome to another episode of Fixplasm. This episode, I'm, de- I'm delighted to be joined by Rhiannon. Hi. And Paul. Hi. This episode, we're going to cover what has been requested several times by Paul, and also enthe- enthusiastically agreed to by Rhiannon. And it's uh, Ian M. Banks' The Culture, specifically Accession, but we're actually going to talk a bit more about the culture first of all. So I'm going to open the discussion up to uh, our guests. First of all, Paul, would you like to talk a bit more about the culture and exactly what it is and what kind of genre of science fiction it is? Okay, so it's, I suppose, it's a very, very high-tech form of science fiction. The culture itself is a society that's post-scarcity. There's no shortage of anything. It's some sort of, you know, essentially utopia. You know, I'd love to live there. And then you get to the questions involved. culture is like there are a couple of points there I might take exception to in that in terms of what you were saying about the minds that is certainly a common criticism that other societies that exist in this far future galactic uh, universe have made of the culture Uh, the culture does occasionally get into conflicts or wars and one of the things that those hostile to it say is that it is controlled by its minds but in the culture as we see it it certainly presents itself as very egalitarian whether or not what that is the case I think is one of the debates around culture society And then I think the other point I wanted to pick up on is you talked about it as being quite technological. I want to be clear that Banks' culture novels are not what I would call hard SF. They're very soft in the sense of being about the sociology, about the people, Mm. although you do have these massive engineering projects like ring worlds and Dyson spheres, which will be terms familiar to any science fiction reader, but basically big um, solar system style uh, scale constructs what the stories are about uh, is people 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say again, go for the lines. The lines are so that's an interesting thing about how banks handles um, mines and artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence is a big part of the culture, and you have drones of various types, some microscopically small, um, which do have artificial intelligence of their own. And then you have these um, much larger minds with a capital M who control the ships of the culture. Every ship in the culture has its own opinions, personality and intentions and goals. Every ship is is a person. And minds also run orbitals and ring worlds. So it's, it leads for an interesting civilization in which even though there's a quasi-militaristic shape to the society, any individual starship can decide to just up and go and do its own thing. That's a great brief overview of the culture itself. Shall we now talk about the novel Accession specifically? Uh, so which who's given the synopsis? So I think I'll Yes, please. Excellent. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, novel is that this is one in which you get to see the culture acting from a lot of different perspectives so the question of this um, out of context problem the arrival effectively of a kind of black body sphere somewhere in the universe which is frightening the culture and looks to be um, potentially a, a powerful thing that could be taken over by them or by the affront, has mobilised people of different types from all across the culture. So there's this um, long, the participants in this long ago romance, there is a very young woman who is about to start off on her first real adventure and make a transition from being rather a spoiled princessy type to a bit of a more capable kind of person. Yep. And um, there's 
a um, very social phobic um, individual who's living on his own, looking after a batch of um, military material who gets drawn into this story. Um, There's the chap you mentioned who's living with this other civilization, the Affront, who are brutal, militaristic, almost like the Vogons. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the chap who's been staying with them, I want to say Gnarhufon, names are a bit difficult to pronounce, uh, has quite enjoyed his time with these people. um, And their sort of happy murderer kind of uh, approach to things and he's dragged into this whole conflict around the accession the out of context problem so one of the good things about this book and why i suggested it as a a good entry for anyone unfamiliar with the culture if you've never read any ian banks or ian m banks you're not familiar with the culture this is a great way to begin because you get to see the culture doing a lot of things yeah at the same time i think it does the the classic banks thing which is you have several plot strands and they all converge to a thing that's going to happen sometime in the future in interesting ways. Uh, and the, uh, but the separate, separate plot strands are, are themselves still very satisfying. Yeah. You get a sense of vast forces at work yeah. and, as the reader, you're not going to see everything that's going on, but you get to glimpse it, both through the perspectives of the point of view characters you follow, and also through transcripts of conversations by the minds. These transcripts are shared with those involved in the problem, and you get to see how the minds operate when talking to each other, and uh, some quite high-level politics that is coming into force. But a bit like an 80s news group. <laughs> Very much like that, yes. actually. Which uh, it shouldn't be a surprise. But when when was Accession written? Nineteen ninety six. Okay, so it would have been um, well around the time of Monochrome and other BBS, and, and uh, but before before the internet as we know it now. Really. It's amazing how it stood um, the test of time. Actually, that it doesn't feel dated. There are a few moments like that where you can see where Banks has maybe got some of the inspiration, but it's a very still seems like a very modern possible for our future yeah i mean mean, this this whole thing about the communication between the ships and the mines uh it does work like a bulletin board system or email it's totally plausible today even though it's because how else are you going to communicate over vast distances and um they are having what i also think is quite human conversations which is quite interesting yeah, you definitely get a flavour that the minds are distinct personalities of their own. They don't all share a common opinion on what it constitutes a threat or how to handle that threat. And also there's a strong vein of fun that to the minds, even the biggest, most dangerous problem is a sort of a game. Yeah. I mean, another thing where this sense of fun comes in is, of course, names of the ships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's lovely because every culture, ship or mind gets to choose its own name and sometimes they change their name in response to events or circumstance. Some of the names are puns, some of the names are uh, quite subtle references, some of the names reference other names. And the, and the most, uh, the, the main one, our point of view mind stroke ship is probably sleeper service. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I know there's also a grey area there, but it's 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 uh, sleeper service is the main one. Um, 
being an eccentric ship as well, which is which is kind of interesting. And we're moving towards the themes of the uh, the themes of the the book anyway. So maybe we should just move into that section. Um, if, unless there's any, is there anything else critical we need to mention about the synopsis? No, I think we've covered most things. Be- because I think it's quite a simple plot, really, and the, the joy in it is actually seeing all of this come together and the, the conversations between the characters. And yes, there is an interesting plot there, but it is essentially, as you say, humans converging on one another and ships converging on an alien thing, which is the accession or the out-of-context problem. Uh, here's a theme that I think is quite interesting. Um one of the reasons I wanted us to go with this book as an entry point is the first book that Banks writes about, the first book that Banks writes set in the culture universe is Consider Flavas. Yes. And that's actually from the point of view of a character who isn't part of the culture, who is on the opposing side of quite a serious war. And at the um, point in the culture chronology when accession um begins this war is in the past there has been a massive there has been this massive conflict and there has now been a demobilization the culture is sort of thinking about itself a bit differently as a result of a war that it found itself in wasn't entirely happy to be in learned some things about itself it didn't really like and some of the parts of the culture quite enjoyed being at war and wouldn't mind being at war a little bit more, whereas other parts have reacted um, with considerable aversion and feels that a war shouldn't be the kind of thing that the culture is doing. And this all influences the responses to this out-of-context problem. So what, uh, so you're really talking about a forking of the, 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 the core principles of the culture, people diverging away from that and referring to themselves as the culture but actually having opposing views and the ships themselves having opposing views. Yeah, I think one of the things that it's quite difficult to grasp as a reader is why does the culture hang together in the way that it does and some of the other major players in as it were, galactic universal politics, are also confused by this. How does the culture work? How does something which is such a sort of family argument and squabble across multiple, multiple systems and bases with lots of different strong personalities, how does this hold together? And I think one of the things that's so compelling about Banks is this idea of the culture, capital letters. How does this culture work? How did it come together? How does it stick together? Because it doesn't feel like it should work as a narrative device either with the with the whole post-scarcity thing and the citizens who have the opportunity to live long lives full of, uh, of nothing but pleasure. Yeah, and everyone we meet is very, almost everyone we meet is very chilled out, happy person, spending their time, as Paul was saying earlier, playing games, doing sport, having sex, changing gender, having children, doing more sport. Um, travelling for amusement. Um, any individual in the culture has vast resources. If you want something, then your local mind will probably give it to you. I think this is touching on one of the big themes of well, this book, but also the entire culture series, which is what do you do in this utopia? Find a purpose. So in the books, a lot of the characters find a purpose by saying, well, not every other galaxy is remotely as happy as the culture. How can we improve it? And then you get to a second big theme, 
which is this idea of benevolent interference in other societies. How do you know that's the right thing to do? When is it and when isn't it the right thing to do? And for that matter, how could all be justified? Should it ever be justified? And these are big questions. That's one thing that makes the whole thing interesting to me. Yeah, well, one of the other things, the building on that, and explicitly mentioned in Accession, is the idea that cult- the culture itself, as a whole, is right on the edge of ascending into becoming an elder race. And uh, like the Babylon, I, I guess like Babylon 5, the uh, the race going beyond the rim to, uh, to set itself apart from the young races. And for some reason, it's not quite made the decision yet, but it has made the decision to meddle in the fates of lesser developed races or lesser developed uh, technologically or culturally. And I think that that's one of the things that really brings it home to me that there are differences of opinion about how to conduct oneself in the culture. It's not a, there is no one mission statement as far as I can see. It's basically a loose agreement that we have all these resources and we have citizens who need not want for anything um how do we continue going around existing and there are as we said differences of opinion um whether we should continue to conduct war whether we should um elevate other races or trade with them or give them our technology etc etc maybe this is one of the reasons why the culture is so successful in that it doesn't have a very prescriptive ideology in terms of how it deals with other races there is this division a sort of quasi-political military division called contact which deals with meeting other races and then there's a not there's a a sort of subsection of that called uh, special circumstances. And the culture seems to find itself in special circumstances a lot. And there is a suspicion that it's SC that is really running the show. But I think what this contains within it is an acknowledgement that one size doesn't fit all in terms of ideology. You have to have some flexibility, some individuality, that it's individuals and the choices they make are still very important to the culture they're not a military oligarchy yeah special now, cert- sorry go ahead Paul no I was just like absolutely I mean, this whole idea is it's, it's strong and advancing and so attractive but positive it's diversity and you do see yes people in the human culture but the biological people in the culture you see as human but there's references to power and humanity they're not all Yeah, they're actually exceptionally diverse. And one of the nice things about the culture for the science fiction reader is that these people are not monolithic culturally, physically, mentally. This isn't one of the cases in which the white man went out and, or the white American man went out and conquered the stars. These people, and they're not necessarily Earth origin humans, that's a bit fudged in these novels. But there are people, there are black people, there are white people, there are brown people, there are people um, with very different types of physiognomy, different kinds of lives, different sorts of approaches to things. It's a universe with a lot of room for diversity. Indeed. And and, and, uh, going back to the comment about the fluidity of both gender and, and sexuality, you have um, people who can physiologically decide what sexual organs they have at any one point and 
mostly they pe- some people will choose to be predominantly male or female or all settle somewhere in the middle and there's a there's a whole spectrum there as if it's it is just a biological function and there is an acknowledgement that uh gender is a personal choice and people have the have the ability to choose whether they exist in one gender or another but apart from that that's all it is there is no uh, there's clearly no um patriarchy or matriarchy in this situation either because they there's mostly they've transcended flesh they've more or less conquered age um not and, entirely transcended flesh because there's quite a lot about sex it's a very sex positive culture in which people true. have a lot of very a lot of casual sex sex yeah. with friends sex with lovers and they're long-lived people so they may have multiple relationships that was more what i meant is is, is basically they've they've not entirely con- they've not entirely solved the problem of aging but um, mostly people who die have more or less chosen to go into mm. storage rather than rather than are suffering the effects of aging. And we know that there's a memorable scene in this book where we know that people can actually recover using advanced medical science from pretty catastrophic injuries as well. And they can have their consciousness consciousnesses copied and beamed across the beamed to other networks and and um, kept alive in that in that state as well so it's, yeah. it's i mean it's transhumanism and it's transhumanism before we actually really had a name for it i don't know if that's fair i think that's fair i mean i think it's one of those things where you talk about the, what's it the new space i think that calls question about how people in this kind of society find motivation is a very good one the more i think about it because yeah, I would love to live in the culture too. My goodness, what a fantastic place to live. But the stories that Banks chooses to tell us, this book is actually a little bit unusual in the fact that he has so many different points of view because most culture books focus on an individual. The stories he tells us are about people who are somehow dissatisfied with their life or people who are ambitious and want to take their achievements to another level. And he does find stories to tell us set in this world where you'd think that no one had any problems at all. But, of course, they do have problems because they are human enough to have them and they have love affairs, successful and failed. They have a number of ambitions. So, for example, there's a young woman called... Uh, oh, what is the name of the... Alva Seish. Yeah. There's a young woman called Alva Seish who desperately wants to be part of contact and special circumstances and is having this sort of first adventure and has been sent off with a mission which is a bit equivocal and who exactly sent her on this mission and what is it intended to accomplish. And she is hoping to be a force to be reckoned with in this big universe. So the stories that Banks tells us are about people who, who want more. Would you say that's fair, Paul? I think that's very fair. People who are somehow... I mean, it's interesting what you said. I think the problems of the flesh have been transcendent. You know, the body doesn't really have any problems. But psychologically, the same problems are there. Again, conversation wanting more. General finding more satisfaction with the affront with the culture. Or another one that's very striking is... I think you mentioned this, Rhiannon, Yes, and that's an individual who acknowledges that he could 
be altered. The technology totally exists to make him uh, less uh, social phobic, more able to participate in the life of the in the life of the culture. But he doesn't want that. He wants to remain himself, even if he knows that the kind of self he is is unusual and could be perceived as broken. I think there's one other thing to say about to build on this this comment about um, dissatisfied characters. This, as we've said, we've already said, this is a post-scarcity environment where most people, if they want it, that they will often have the opportunity to pursue what they want. And I guess part of the problem is working out what they want to do. But in this case, we have a lot of characters have all the resources they need, they need at their disposal to make a change, maybe not the change that they thought they wanted, but some sort of change as well. And just like the ships will be vastly powerful and, and have sufficient power that they can uh, they can leverage their that power to bring their own opinion on how the cultures should be to the rest of the culture. Individuals also have the ability to pursue their own ambitions. Yes, and that includes ships as well, because yeah. um, some of the things that the ships do in this book, the great ship minds, are very much pursuing their own ambitions. Yeah, it is a story about individuals. Um, it, and individualism. Yes, yeah. Yeah, very much so, I agree. Which, which is perhaps the... It's what you need. If you have a utopian society that isn't stagnant, then you have to give people the freedom to use the resources at their disposal. Otherwise, it's actually not a utopia. Yes, I think it's so clear in these books that Banks has a lot of fun with them. He's really enjoying building this universe for you to read about. He's enjoying playing in it. He's incredibly inventive. Um, There's a lot of stuff crammed into these books. And as you're reading them, it's... It's very engrossing, um, all of the different characters, all of the different kinds of worlds. I think that if Banks has a flaw and all authors have some, I think he's generally not great at endings. And one of the reasons I think Accession is quite good is that I think it has a more satisfactory ending than some of his books. They can have a tendency to feel that he just stopped writing and went away. I felt like that was considered flavours. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's yeah. a weird ending. Yeah, I, I, I don't mind. I don't mind where it end, where it eventually ended up. Anticlimactic, I don't know, but it wasn't. It wasn't as satisfying as the ending of this book. Um, so, shall we talk about some of the other Banks books now? Do you think maybe we've reached that point? Can I make an I've just mentioned one more thing. So you've mentioned this with the Elder Civilization. This, this idea of should you strive for uh, some sort of duty to others, or is it a case of giving up? And... Yes. Banks talks about this in other books as well, the idea of death and how the culture and other galactic cultures handle it. And not just death, but um, enlightenment, that when you reach a certain point of enlightenment, this idea that your technology um, is basically magic to lesser developed um, civilizations, but also that you seem to... At a certain point, a technological society accesses a sort of god level, and some of these minds have the resources of gods, but the culture thus far has managed to avoid too much introspection, 
it's the culture is having too much fun being itself mm. to ascend to this higher plane of uh, metaphysics or thought or reality. I wanted to mention something before before we uh, we talk too much. We've talked a lot about the high level stuff about the culture, which is you know, at the very heart of it. But there are also lots of little examples of technology as uh, well. Technology as magic, more or less. Um, and they're explained in technological terms. For example, the ship that's been baroque with uh, and has been etched with um, etched with all over its surface, and those crevices, which are tiny, could contain um, intelligent nanotech, which have their own artificial intelligences. So, sweeping a ship of that magnitude would be um, incredibly time-consuming. And it's this kind of throwaway thing that Banks has just thought about. There's no real thought out a thought about the resource intensiveness or the the hard science behind it or how it would work. But there's lots of little examples like that. There's th- things like gel suits and things like artificial gravity. Or there's one wonderful bit in early on where we talk about one of the protagonists moving from a low-grav low grav to a higher-grav world and their physiology changing automatically because they um, they basically set a I, th- I think they set a mental trigger to say I am moving to a different gravitational environment and the body automatically then starts to change bone density and distribution of fat and that sort of thing and it's all sort of little throwaway things there but it is basically the magic of um, of a sort of post-human society being able to adapt to any environment and indeed environments that we couldn't imagine surviving in and I think there's lots of little bits like that. And that sort of thing drives home the vast resources and the technological freedom that a lot of the characters within the culture have. Yeah, you have these lovely little short bits um, which introduce ideas which aren't used in the, the epic sweep of the plot. So there's a sort of five-page-long section in which we encounter a chap called Lefid who is having some very enjoyable sex in a, a small craft with a woman whose name he's forgotten. And during the course of this encounter, he's trying to remember her name. And he does eventually manage to, but is um, then further distracted by having spotted a uh, emergency message across the scar hull of an infronter light cruiser, which introduces one of the clues, themes, bits of the epic plot. But we see this from the point of view of um, this completely random character. Yeah, that random character is brilliant for, for three reasons. One, that um, it's got wings. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's obviously, yes, well, if you've got, if you can do anything to your body, then then why not graft a pair of wings onto your shoulders? It looks great. Secondly, um, he's letting the gravitational shift of the yacht that he's on <laughs> do most of the work for, for both of them having sex together, grinding together. And, and the third thing is, the reason he can't remember the character's name is because he's given up his neural lace. So this, this neural lace, which I guess it's, this is, again, going to be something like augmented reality before we augmented reality is a thing. Like a brain pod. Yeah, it's, it's access to as much information as you need wherever you are. Um, and he's given it up because he's gone to a festival of, of, um, of some sort. Primitivism. Primitivism, i.e. before you have a cell phone. So he's, he's no longer got this device that helps him remember the name of all the women he's bones. And so. all of this comes in in a very short period. Yeah. You know, just sort of four or five pages of book. All these concepts are introduced. Yeah. Um, 
it's lovely. So what, what I really want to, want to say is I think that whilst we have these big questions and, and interesting things about where the culture go, culture goes, one of the great things about Accession for, for example, SF fans, particularly who want to turn it into a role-playing game, which I'm sure we'll get to in a bit, is lots and lots of little details. And the thing is, I think that the main limitation is the imagination. Um, uh, and if you, uh, as we say again, if you have unlimited resources, then really you uh, and you want to run this kind of game with some players you can let them have whatever they want as long as it feels sort of more or less scientifically plausible and uh, then they could have access to all this technology and not only have it access to it use it in interesting ways and i think the idea to use a, a shifting gravitational field just to have better sex is um, obviously has no value in the actual overall plot but it sounds like a brilliant thing to do we're going to talk you wanted to talk a bit more about some of the other books is that right yeah, I think that could be interesting. Um, I know that, Paul, you were quite keen to discuss Player of Games, and it was me who nominated Accession as an entry point. Use of, you of Weapons. That, uh, was it Use of Weapons? Use of Weapons was another suggestion. Yeah. Let's stick with Constable Player of Games. So, um, Player of Games, another good entry into the culture. What's what's up with that, Paul? So, Player of Games, again, you've got the uh, fact there's an individual who is, well... His great talent is that he's excellent at all manner of games. And again, you've got the typical thing where he has certain fundamental dissatisfaction at the heart of this. But you do see various people, his orbital in the culture, and he does end up getting dragged into special circumstances through blackmail after being, well, goaded into cheating at a game, something which would ruin his reputation. And then, of course, his skills are used against another society that special circumstances seems as quite likely is exceptionally cruel and wants to bring down. Yes, yeah, so in that book, our hero. I'm very bad at remembering the names of characters in the culture. What is the name of that chap? I've also forgot something. The names in the culture books are very deliberately made up collections of sewers. Well, they serve as addresses, don't they? So, in the Player of Games, our point of view character is chosen as a representative of the culture and, ah, Jernal Morat Gerge. So, let's think of him as Gerge. Gerge, I remember Yeah, Gerge is chosen as a representative of the culture by special circumstances and sent off um, to another um, sort of galactic level civilization to participate in a very important game because this is a society which is um, very much built up around games and the playing of this particular game is how they choose their emperor. So Gerga is expected to um, play this game, put in a decent level of performance that will make this empire respect the culture a little bit more. At least that's what he's told is his mission. So he is encountering this alien civilization and judging it by the mores of the culture, as we've previously discussed. And this other civilization is, it's quite warlike, it's imperial in its structure, so it has an emperor in the first place, and it's quite brutal and Ralph was talking earlier about how the culture doesn't have a patriarchy or a matriarchy or misogyny but this other society most definitely does. Of course this empire has 
there's the apex gender who is on top level then. Yes, it has, as it were, men and women and a sort of transition species, um, these apices. The empire is called Azad, and that is the same name as the game. The game is also called Azad. But I think, although that is an interesting book and there's a lot in it, um, one of the things that I find annoying about it uh, is that I don't think it's very good on the subject of games. I don't think the game of Azad is well explained. I think it serves a role in the plot, which is quite metaphorical, and I don't want to give away too many spoilers. But for a book which is called The Player of Games, and which is all about the playing of games, I don't really feel any kind of connection to the games. Mm-hmm. Not in the same way that one would do with um, the book Ender's Game, uh-huh. which yes. has quite a lot of games in it. Absolutely, yeah. What do you think, Paul? I think, I mean, I think it's a very strong book. that's Banks being rather better at endings the player of games is one of the books that does have a better ending because of the predictable shape of it another note on Banks this is something that when I first started reading him I found quite uncomfortable as a reader and therefore I think other readers should be warned every now and again he takes a tangent into what I would call horrific and it shows up in every one of his science fiction novels that there is a character or a group of characters who are into torture. Some books have a bigger section about this than others, but I would say that if you are a bit squeamish about torture, if that's not something you enjoy reading about, be aware that it does show up in his novels pretty reliably. It's not often the main thrust of the book, but there will always be a section. Uh, Good call. Supposedly, of these non-SF books, every other one is nasty. Um, I don't think the Wasp Factory is that bad. I mean, it's pretty gruesome, but in, in bits. But I also think it's fantastic as a sort of short shot and, and first attempt as well, because that that is his debut novel, I think. Yeah. It, Wasp Factory. Since we've just mentioned games, why don't we get onto the role-playing game section? Because I think there's a couple of things we might want to talk about. Have um, Paul, have you got uh, an idea for the, the kind of game that Accession, or, or more generally the culture, inspires you to run? Absolutely. So there's one called Mindjammer. Uh-huh. It's by Sarah Newton. Yes. And a key society in that is something called uh, the commonality. It's rediscovering, reconnecting with human societies in space thousands of years after they've been founded, basically because the fast and light drive is relatively new to the setting. So there's lots of slow and light colonisation that's gone on. And now there's lots of reconnection with divergent cultures. And the commonality has a lot of culture-like elements to it. You know, it's, it, it's got a degree of all for tech. It's got sentient starships. Yes, you can play sentient starships as a character, quite happily, and avatars of these things. I mean, the interesting thing is that Sarah had read culture when she wrote that Yeah, that, that's interesting. Didn't Sarah Newton Sarah Newton write the Chronicles of Future Earth? That's correct. Yes. Which I always assumed was um, very is very similar to Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, which is it's, it's interesting how those sort of that that, that template has uh, has has permeates and, and uh, gains recognition. Yeah, absolutely. 
occurs off the bat if you're a very culture like experience. And you're saying the core activity in Mind Jammer is what reconnecting with lost human cultures? Yes. Yeah. Which are often, you know, genetically diverged. There are other things. There are near equal cultures to it. You know, the worst one being the Venu, who were, well, nasty space fascists. So there is more type activity there. Shades of the Scarens, surely. But no, it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting game, which I like a lot. So it's both of written a couple of things for us. Yes, yes. Um, it's huge, though, isn't it? It's a massive book. It's a big book. It's quite a. It's, it's fate based. Quite a more heavy version of fate, which is interesting. Hmm. What's and then, of course, the Kickstarter launched a whole lot of supplements, which are mostly set material. Wow. Yeah. So that's uh, and and that's that's really a sort of quite a, a recent publication, isn't it? Yes. The last. Yeah, fantastic. Ray, have you got ideas for role-playing games for the culture? Well, I've been thinking about this, and if uh, people listened to last week's episode in which we talked about what we're reading, I was talking then about an idea for a science fiction game in which characters had a lot of resources. And our conversation about the culture and about these infinite resources is making me think again about that idea. And... But I think what I find a bit challenging for a culture universe game is that everyone is is so individual. It's always a problem in a role-playing game to bring a party together and establish a common purpose. And I think in a universe like the culture, where every individual has such immense access to resources and such an individual approach I do think it would be quite hard to hold a party together they're going to be a very diverse group they're going to come from far-flung places all of this galaxy it's not interesting to do it any other way everyone's going to have their own strong view about what should happen so I think a, a challenge in a game is harnessing that individualism establishing a common purpose and also the problem that banks has which is what is the end point well i think that's always going to be a problem for a role-playing game anyway because you have a uh, assuming that the players have agency they are not going to stop at the point the gm thinks is the conclusion to the arc although hopefully they'll come to they'll resolve their own personal goals um, I, mean, I, I've, I've been thinking about this problem as well about sort of how to make a role-playing game out of it, particularly with, with such far-flung characters. One of the things I thought was that essentially taking the structure of Accession or similar Banks novels where you have characters who are all doing their individual thing and they're converging on a point, the most interesting thing about that structurally is actually the connectedness that these characters have that's gradually revealed over the course of the story. So I'm thinking that right from the start, you have player characters who have relationships with one another and you can draw a relationship web, uh, particularly if you have, a, for example, a ship who at some point was responsible for the other characters and that partly motivates the ship's actions. And one interesting game sh- game system you could use to do that might be the drama system. That's a uh, it's a narrative dramatic scene based game, uh, Hill Folk written by Robin D. Laws, um, but also has been taken in various interested directions. I've talked about Malandros in the past by Tom McGrenry, 
but well, essentially, the, the most interesting thing it does is very simple. You start off with all the characters around the table describing themselves as part of a community and describing their relationship to other characters in terms of what they want from the other character and why they're not getting it. The The other player will, will describe why their character is not willing to make that emotional concession. Now, that's kind of a very small-scale village-type thing, but I can imagine extending those over distance and over the scope of the culture. You need to think a lot more imaginatively, but you would be able to draw those threads between characters to say... What, what is the relationship between these two characters and is it a function of shared history? Is it a function of a relationship with a third party? Is it a shared ideology or, or whatever? And use that to draw them together because that relationship then forms an axis of one one person pulling against the other and asking them to concede to their viewpoint. Now, I talked about that in very loose terms, but if I wanted to have a disparate game where you had lots and lots of characters all far-flung but all moving towards the same point, I'd kind of use those relationships just to tie them together and maybe tell some of the story in flashback. So you can't realistically have everybody located in the same place right there and now, but you could um, have a flashback scene that talks about the past relationship and then uh, may colour later scenes in, in the now where either they interact with each other or interact with the rest of the world. So I, I think that that could be an interesting way to do it. I think it would also lend itself quite well to something that I've seen in co-op games and something that you brought into a game that I played in last year, which involved flashback scenes between other characters, which is um, bringing, encouraging the players to create part of the world. So when you have a world that is, is as big and inventive as the culture there's a lot of room for creativity and imagination. So if you had a group of players who wanted to individually and collectively um, create bits of universe, there's a lot of room for them to do that, to have met in a variety of situations and environments which could then come into the game. So that kind of collective world building would be very possible in this environment. Yeah, and, and collaborative world building is is the the hotness right now. Well, mm. I don't know if it's the hotness right now. Certainly, uh, it is it is a popular thing, particularly amongst the story game EGMless crowd. I know that um, Josh Fox is is working on his game Flotsam, which is uh, a I believe it's a hack of uh, Dream Askew by Avery Alder, but that's basically uh, more or less shared world building or at least the part that i played was shared world building in a space station where you can describe your culture and how it how it um touches on other people's cultures within defined parameters and, and templates because you can't make it too loose but i think that could work fine well what i like about the culture in that context is the fact that almost anything goes so you don't run into the problem that you do sometimes have with collective world building which is that another player doesn't really like your idea or doesn't think it fits and then you don't get to have it and in the culture anything is possible so meshing those the meshing of those ideas is what's interesting yeah i think i think like a culture game i definitely want to even in a more traditional thing i definitely want to design my characters Homeworld, shift, water, or whatever it's possible. I mean, think of the more indie type films. One thing that might be interesting is something like 
Yes. In the culture, because yeah, microscope and also kingdom, which is uh, the kingdom is more about the political decisions those characters ha- make in those kinds of uh, in that kind of environment uh, by the same author, Ben Robbins. Is Ben Robbins? I think think it's Ben Robbins. Okay, I think we've come to a fairly short role-playing section here, um, and we'll go into last words. So I'll go around. So, Ree, have you got anything last you'd like to say about accession, about the culture, or anything else that you've remembered halfway through the Mm -hmm. conversation and we we didn't have an opportunity to talk about? I think we've had a really good discussion about accession and about the culture more generally. I would encourage readers to um, explore Ian M. Banks if you haven't done so already. And as I said before, I think this is a great entry point. The novels individually are quite different and there is a darkness to them. I touched on the torture before. There are some extremely strong novels in this and... Uh, some of them are full of quite hard-hitting stuff. So there's, it's a very rewarding um, thing to explore, Banks. But there are moments, I think, where the reader would be genuinely shocked by some of the things that occur in the novels. So there's a tremendous inventive fun, but at the core of them, there is also a kind of what darkness lies within the human soul. Yes, Good point. So, if we're, so use of weapons, for example, is a is a pretty dark one. Yep. And that is the, of course, that, yeah, that is almost the whole point of the book, really. It does go through a lot of the hot things, as well as some black humour. Paul, have you got any uh, last words you'd like to say? Yeah, so, well, as I know, it's great being on here talking about Ian and Banks' culture novels. I've been trying to nag you to do this for ages. Yeah. <laughs> you find it, you know, <laughs> But also, no, but also, yeah, I agree with what Rhiannon said about the combination. I mean, the combination of the sheer fun inventiveness and a bit of darkness is part of what makes it compelling. That's a big, big question. I also say, if we made them sound like difficult dreams, we've done them a disservice. You know, they're fun. You should try them. Accession certainly uh, slips around very easily. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Read it very quickly. Yeah, I'd think that's I think that's right I think the fun is very important the inventiveness is very important and they are accessible this is not a book in which the author is trying to awe you with his knowledge of his or her knowledge of physics or of great science fiction invention this is the kind of writing in which the author wants you to have fun and play with them they're inviting you into their world and saying look what I've invented come join in yeah and even the novels with slightly unusual structures such as yeah, we should definitely do a section on in Fictoplasm about novels with unusual structures because there's a lot to be gained from those as well. Oh, so that, that's a good call. Well, let's have a think about that. I think there's one more thing I'd like to say about Accession specifically, which is that the big overarching plot is a setup which I find incredibly compelling. That is a first contact stroke alien object floating in space type uh, setup with a group of characters with a remit of investigating said objects. Frequently, those kinds of scenarios are ultimately a letdown. I don't think that... I think Event Horizon, for example, the film, is has got a brilliant premise. Not a particularly satisfying ending because it just turns into a horror show. Uh, there's a book called uh, Unto Leviathan, 
by um, Rousseau, I want to say, I can't remember, but it's it's basically, again, it's got an interesting thing about the, the Catholic Church in space. And it starts off with an interesting investigation into a, um, a settlement on a planet of, of colonists and then a spaceship which is has just appeared and is a complete mystery and the characters then explore it. That doesn't really go anywhere either. For that reason, I kind of resisted talking about a role-playing game that does the first contact scenario, although I quite fancy doing that. The first contact scenario, of course, ha- doesn't really have anything to do with the culture. Uh, this could be in any science fiction setting and indeed... Uh, it's also a staple of things like uh, Lovecraftian fiction or um, any kind of uh, near-future space exploration or anything else like that. Um, and but I still think it's worth considering as a uh, as a narrative device the thing that the, the weird alien temple or the thing in the desert or the the undersea structure or, or whatever. It's Brilliant. a very common trope, isn't it? I was just thinking about Greg Bear's Aeon, which uses yeah. the same idea a out-of-context problem, possibly from, from an elder technology or a much more advanced technology, is the catalyst for a set of events. Yeah. But I agree with you, Ralph. I think often it's sort of unsatisfying because a technology that passes all understanding, by definition, passes all understanding. Yeah. I think Banks deals quite well with that. It, does, I mean, it doesn't really touch it. I mean, that's not <laughs> what the story is about. That's the whole point. Well, so. I yeah, yeah, absolutely. 2001 and 2010 as well, which, I, I, you know, the thing I loved about 2010 is they come back to the original spaceship and then they explore it. And that, that is quite interesting that they, they know there's a mission, this whole idea of a mission gone before. The same thing as Event Horizon. Well, the ship vanished and now it's reappeared. And sometimes it works, but frequently it's it's either goes into hand-waving narrative woo or, or blood and gore or, or something that's, as you the say... The Fifth Element belongs to this genre as well. The movie The Fifth Element. Fifth Element. De- yeah, I was thinking about that with the, the the weird alien planet that's heading towards Earth. And it's, wow. And that that's... In some ways, that's better because it doesn't really explain why it is. It's just this big, nasty thing. But And I think The Fifth Element is quite Banksian, actually. If you want to sort of see a bit of science fiction, if you like to consume it, as in film form, you could do a lot worse than The Fifth Element, which is quite a complex uh, future society, but with a lot of fun in it and shown from the point of view of an individual. That's if you think that everyone in the culture dresses like Jean-Paul Gaultier. They can if they want to, that's the point. The opposite is quite Absolutely brilliant, yeah. And, uh, okay. Well then, I think that there are, there are a few things that we haven't mentioned but they're kind of, they could fit into any science fiction science fiction uh, world, like ultra and infraspace and the grids that underpin the universe and that sort of thing that, where all energy is drawn. Going back to what I said earlier about the little details, they're kind of inconsequential. They're just a means to an end to get the characters from A to B and explain why they have magical powers. It's so. soft SF, but from an author who has a sense of hard SF. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's, he talks the language as uh, it has a plausibility, even, even if it doesn't have actually a rationale. Yeah, he okay. doesn't want to spend a lot of time describing the mechanics, just long enough to whet your appetite. Yeah, yeah. Another thing you said which would fit into any discussion, which is you know, this idea that mystery is much more than any solution. That's almost universal. Agreed. 
Yeah, I think in terms of the mystery plot novels of Banks, most of them are not that complex. Um, there was one that I guessed the crucial insight of the book in the opening chapter, um, which sort of took away from it a little bit. But I don't think that's really what he's about as an author. Right then. I think we've come to the end. So thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. It's been brilliant. And thank you, Rhiannon. It's been great to have you along as well. Yeah, brilliant. Cheers. All right. And that's our show. See you next time.